You are listening to Money on the Left, a monthly interdisciplinary podcast that reclaims money's public powers for imaginative intersectional politics, proudly presented in partnership with Monthly Review Online. Our guest this month is Engelbert Stockhammer, professor of political economy in the Department of European and International Studies at King's College, London. Professor Stockhammer has published widely on topics we cover often on this show and in our own research namely financial instability and post-Keynesian economics. But Scott Ferguson and I were especially excited to talk with Engelbert about a particular working paper he published with the Post-Keynesian Economic Society in fall 2021, titled Hilferding, Wojtynski, and the Fiscal Orthodoxy of Interwar Social Democracy. The paper sheds new light on the radical possibilities for interwar German political economy that were closely considered but, tragically, never materialized in the Weimar period. The paper is essential reading, and this interview is essential listening to anyone interested in the history of the 20th century. By the end of our chat, you might be left pondering, like Scott and me were, what could have happened if, instead of rejecting Vladimir Wojtynski's proposal for a union-backed, debt-financed, public works program, the sound money Marxists of the 1920s German Social Democratic Party had rather embraced it. If you dig what you hear in this episode and would like to support our work, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. Doing so gets you access to additional audio goodness and also supports those in the Money on the Left editorial collective who do this work without the benefit of full-time academic jobs. Thanks to Rich Farrell for the transcript, to Megan Sauce for the graphic, and to Nanin Kula for the theme tune. Engelbert Stockhammer, welcome to Money on the Left. Thanks for having me. It is a pleasure to have you. Could you start by telling our audience just a bit about your personal and professional background and how they inform your research and pedagogy? And for, for example, you describe your approach as post-Keynesian and your work as primarily interested in financialization and financial instability. Could you tell us about your background and how those terms come together for you in your work? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll tell a story that hopefully leads to the Wojtynski paper that we'll be discussing today. So when I say post-Keynesianism, I mean sort of critical heterodox macroeconomics in the tension between Keynes and Marxist ideas. So if you want, it's about on the one hand class struggle, on the other hand, effective demand, involuntary unemployment, but also financial dynamics, financial instability, and, and how you bring those together. So I'm uh, originally from Linz, which is a medium, for Austrian standards speak, uh, industrial but provincial town. The, the only significance, historically significance of Linz is that uh, in 1934, the anti-fascist uh, workers' uprising uh, that happened in Austria started in Linz. So, I mean, it, it, it is a, uh, a town with a certain radical uh, leftist tradition. I should say that workers' uprising was heroic. It was the only armed uh, nationwide uprising in, in Europe against fascism other than in Spain. But different from Spain, our uprising lasted about three days until it was squashed. So it, while it was heroic, it was everything but successful. But it's sort of an indication of the, the, the radicalism and the backbone of the, the, the Austrian labor movement in the interwar years. And that is in part fueled by Austro-Marxism, about which we'll talk a little bit about later. 
Also I'm coming from a from an intellectual family. Uh, my parents essentially were part of the '68 generation, so I uh, grew up in a in a left environment. Went to an anti-authoritarian kindergarten, um, and uh, went to university in Vienna. I by that time was already exposed to Marxist idea and the Frankfurt School and sort of what what leftist students in the 70s would read. Um, and I would have regarded myself on the on the radical left, uh, studied philosophy and economics, economics upon the encouragement of my parents that I should also study something useful. Uh, but I, I soon turned away from philosophy because I realized that when they say philosophy, they actually don't mean Sartre and Frankfurt School and Marx, but they want me to read Kant and uh, Thomas Aquinas, and I had no patience for that. So actually I got into economics, but learned more about economics from the political science and history classes uh, that, that I took at that time. Universities were less commercialized. We were free to take classes from all over the, whatever the university offered. Uh, and politically, I was actually closer to the Greens, which were growing and more radically at, in the 80s in Germany and Austria than the nowadays. Um, and I was involved in student politics, in the student unions, uh, and so on. I went to the US to do my PhD and I went to the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, which is sort of one of the, the strongholds of, of non-mainstream economics. And I went there essentially for modern types of Marxism. By data in particular means that at that time we were excited about French regulation theory and social structures of accumulation. Um, both of which don't feature very prominently today, uh, unjustly, I would think. Uh, but so when I got to UMass, uh, sort of UMass had this big internal divide between the postmodern Marxists, post-structuralist Marxists on the one hand, and uh, that, that was Resnick and Wolf, and on the other hand, there was Bowles and Gintis, who you might uh, think of either in the tradition of analytical Marxism or there were some sort of rational choice theories, game theory of social conflict and all sorts of things, all of which was interesting, but it was not what I was coming for. I mean, it was not social structures of accumulation, that mixture of sort of taking Marxist idea, embedding it in a historical institutional analysis but also using sort of modern statistical and modeling techniques uh, that, that, that I didn't quite find because both Kintis were already too much into micro for my test. And so it's under these circumstances that someone unwillingly, I started to become a post-Keynesian. So at that time I had this problem, so what do I do for, for dissertation? And I was struggling how to sort of reconcile my ambitions with feasible academic projects. And so at that time I had this student subscription to The Economist. So you, you got the, the weekly propaganda organ of international capital. 
And they told me that the real problem of Europe are these inflexible labor markets. At that time, eurosclerosis, inflexible labor markets was the big issue. And the US was great because it has these flexible markets. Uh, and so in case I didn't get it, they was writing the same on the, on the title page and in their leaders and told me that the real problem of Europe was the inflexible labor markets. And what year like, was this in particular? Sorry? What year was this? Uh, we are talking late, uh, mid, late 90s. Okay. Uh, and so at some point I realized, well, they're actually saying there's a dissertation topic for you here. Uh, let's uh, take uh, the, the current mainstream theories of European unemployment. Uh, and that was the Nairo theory, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. It was sort of the theoretical underpinning of that, uh, of that whole discourse. And in my view, it was clear that it was they, they were going after European welfare states and, and wanted to break them up. So to me, that was part of, a, of a, ultimately a neoliberal agenda. And so when I talked about these ideas, my Marxist friends told me, yeah, it's a good idea to write about unemployment. And you have to make clear that unemployment is a systemic feature. In capitalism, it's unavoidable. And then depending on how economic oriented they are, you need the industrial reserve army to maintain a certain profit rate and, and whatever. And I thought, that's crazy. I mean, these guys are going after the welfare state and I should offer an analysis that unemployment is unavoidable. I mean, it, it's not unavoidable. Sweden, Austria, which had relatively good welfare states at the time, had lower unemployment rates than the rest. So apparently you can manipulate that. So in that sense, I unwittingly became a post-Keynesian, also because the Keynesian framework with effective demand had a specific story about unemployment and, and testable predictions. I was interested in the post-Keynesians have what we call conflict theory of inflation, that inflation is the outcome of ultimately unresolved distributional struggles. Initially, it actually was partly developed by Marxists, in particular by, by Rothstein. Uh, also by Latin American structuralists, but it's sort of one of these heterodox economic theory that you can also use for empirical work. Yeah? And so that was my entry point. Uh, and that is how I, I drifted towards the, the post-Keynesians. And the second entry point was, so in, in that story, uh, as effective demand essentially determines unemployment, it's, uh, it's, what the Marxists would call the, the rate of accumulation. The, the, what the, for the Keynesians is capital investment that's important. And so if there is to be a, a substantial story that, no, it's not about labor market institution, but it's about demand, I need a story about demand. And that is where financialization became important for me. So to me, it was essentially around structural changes in the, uh, in the economy, uh, the shareholder value revolution or corporate governance changes, the reassertion of shareholders on higher dividend payments. But what I emphasize is that that's not only an outside pressure on firms, that the shareholders say, hey, guys, we want higher returns, we want higher payouts. But with that, with the fact that firms are regularly reporting to the shareholders, there are organizational changes. So in other words, for me, it was also a way to bring in class struggle into the firm, but not in sort of the Marxist, uh, uh, Marxist industrial sociology, Braverman, 
uh, type of analysis of the labor process, but in terms of corporate governance, how, how do you operationalize what the firm wants? Huh? Uh, with whom do managers talk to? Who, who do they report to on a regular basis? Uh, and there's a side effect of that firms also start, uh, uh, non-financial firms that is start to uh, uh, become more active on financial markets. Now, part of that is hedging because exchange rate become more volatile, but part of that is they start holding other financial assets or shares in other firms. And part of that is that firms think of themselves as profit centers. And they are their own investment, whether they are producing shoes or wine or cars, only becomes one branch and then you branch out. And if government bonds are more, have a higher return, you hold government bonds. Yeah? So it's in that sense that I thought of financialization as a change in what firms are doing in, in terms of chapter. And it was, I mean, what I'm telling you are essentially are chapters of my dissertation. And the, the, the second one uh, became, uh, came out in the Cambridge Journal of Economics on financialization is still one of my most cited papers. So that was my entry into financialization. I then went back to, uh, to Austria, uh, worked for 10 years uh, at, the, at the university in Austria, where we had actually a relatively broad heterodox economics program uh, that was uh, was quite popular with students and a, and a very lively atmosphere. And I, in a way, was continuing to work on these Marx-Keynes tension. And at that time, what was important for me was what, what we now call the, the wage-led versus profit-led demand regimes, but the, the Baduri-Marlin model, these are essentially synthesis models where they say, well, the, the, the Marxist argument emphasizes that investment is profit-driven, uh, and the Keynesian Kaletskian argument is emphasizing that, well, higher wages mean higher consumption, thus higher demand. In the Marxist world, it's underconsumption crisis. Yeah? And these two are brought together in the baduri marlin model. And I was part of a literature that tried to empirically estimate these models and, and see how much mileage uh, we got out of that. Um, and that... Literature then sort of started out with those Marx-Keynes synthesis arguments, but eventually became more applied and asked, so, okay, now that we've estimated whether demand is wage or profit leads, how important is it? How important are other growth drivers? And that led us uh, to thinking about neoliberal demand regimes as either uh, export-driven or finance-led. In the, in the sense that, uh, so in neoliberalism, you have financial deregulation, but you have also, if you want, anti-labor distributional changes. You have rising income inequality. Now, in a happy Marxist world, actually, you would expect an investment boom from that to follow because you got lots of profits. If they get reinvested, you actually would have investment. It's not what happened. Um, so we're saying that, Actually, the, the, the economic structure, the demand regime is still wage-led, but you have those distributional changes that in a way are anti-growth. So you need other growth drivers. And uh, then the argument is, well, in some countries, finance, which initially was associated with stock market booms, uh, but then, uh, as we saw, more important were house, uh, housing booms because they come with much larger wealth effects, there's much larger spillover on, on consumption expenditures, and they also have powerful effects on investment. Uh, 
but there was only one group of countries. So in a way, you get a financialized form of, of neoliberal growth model. But in other groups of countries, say Germany, you get a much more industrial version of, of neoliberalism, where you also suppress wages, but uh, you don't uh, have the same financial dynamics, but in a way, you rely a lot more on export growth. And so the uh, uh, finance-led versus export-led distinction was, was uh, uh, an important one here. And that is a, a sort of analytical framework that recently in comparative political economy, meaning outside economics, also, also has made a lot of interest. But you see, again, it's that, that Keynes, uh, uh, Kalecki, Keynes, uh, Marx, Minsky tension that's, that's often lurking in the background of this. Uh, and then in 2010, I moved to London. Uh, unfortunately, the, the, the heterodox economics uh, degree was shut down in Vienna, uh, essentially because there was a university restructuring and the neoclassical wing of the department used it to, to clean house. But anyways, for me, big part of the reason were, were personal because we were looking for two academic jobs in, in one city and in Europe that's easier in London than elsewhere. And so I moved to London uh, and essentially continued along the, the lines of work. Uh, following up on that, I worked a lot on the, on the Euro crisis. Uh, again, there are th those uh, neoliberal growth models interacting, but then the question, how does the state react and what's the role of the state in particular in the Euro crisis? Uh, to what extent is that a question of different development of unit labor costs? in different parts of Europe or to what extent, meaning that there's real causes behind the, the Euro crisis, or to what extent is it ultimately financial issues? The, the real estate boom in Southern Europe, the fact that the ECB does not support uh, the member states. Uh, so both in, if you want, on the left and right, you get debates, uh, the real or financial factors, the driving forces behind the, uh, the Euro crisis. Uh, and so finally, uh, I became a professor uh, at King's College, where I'm now, where I'm professor for international political economy. So funny enough, I'm not an economist anymore. Um, the, the, again, there was a university restructuring at Kingston, and again, the, the program I was involved in got, got decimated. Uh, but it was also for me a move out of economics and sort of uh, half because conditions in Kingston weren't good, half because I, I was actually anyways happy to get out of economics and talk more to social scientists. Uh, so with that, while the, the Wojtynski paper that we'll be talking about is actually a, a bit aside of my research, it actually ties back to, to what I've been thinking about uh, for quite a while. That's fantastic. Thank you for that um, elaborate introduction. So as you've uh, begun to flag. We've invited you on the show specifically to discuss your fascinating 2021 paper that's titled Helferding, Wojtynski, and the Fiscal Orthodoxy of Interwar Social Democracy. In the essay, you reconsider Vladimir Wojtynski's so-called WTB plan, and we'll unpack what that is, which um, just to quickly gloss is basically a union-backed, debt-financed public works program, which was 
tragically rejected by the Social Democratic Party in Germany in the Weimar uh, period. And it was done so on seemingly Marxist grounds by some of the the leaders of the, the SPD. So I think you've already begun to answer our kind of lead-in question, but I guess we want to know what initially piqued your interest in this particular episode in the history of um, Western Europe, social democracy, the struggle for socialism, uh, etc. And then what would you say your key claims are in that paper? Yeah, well, I'm delighted that someone finds that paper interesting. I'm totally fascinated by, by this episode and by Mr. Wojtynski specifically. Uh, so first, what, what piqued my interest? Now, part of the interest is actually politically and not directly related to my research, and that's the Austro-Marxist tradition. Now, when I left Austria, I actually wasn't particularly intrigued by the Austro-Marxists. Uh, and as I, in a way, turned more social democratic uh, while I was in the U.S. and started more appreciating what, what the Austrian social democrats had achieved, I at some point started to, to read what they'd done. And as I was working on finance, uh, Hilferding's finance capital, of course, is one of the big early Marxists' work on, uh, on finance. And I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating book. I presume we'll have some chance to, to talk a little bit more about it. Um, so Hilferding is trying to restate in finance capital the, the, the Marxist theory and, and thinks what it means for finance, for banking. Uh, and, and he will reinstate in a way a, a commodity theory of money, which I will argue uh, leads to the gold standard. But the Austro-Marxist movement was, was much broader. I mean, Hilferding was, is one of his most famous proponents, but the Austro-Marxists were a sort of, if you want, probably next to the to the Russians at that time, the most dynamic that time is around early, very early 20th century, around First World War. One of the most dynamic and innovative parts of, of Marxist thought and sort of anticipated some of Gramscian ideas, in particular Otto Bauer, uh, sort of democratic ways to socialism, notions of, of uh, cultural hegemony. Um, and uh, uh, Hilferding tried to conceptualize what he called organized capitalism, shifts in capitalism, a changing role of the state in capitalism. Um, and they were also very deeply rooted in, in society in the working class movement. Um, so let me give you a banal example of that. So when I was whatever, 13 years old or so, I, I used to pay, play quite a bit of chess. So for a nerdy young boy, that's a, the, the obvious thing is to play strategy games and before computer games, one, one would play chess. And so in, in Linz, some uh, Austrian town, there would be the Linz Chess Club, which effectively turns out to be the bourgeois uh, upper class cultivated. Right? There was a workers' chess club, the Arbeiterschachverein, which essentially was the Social Democrats, and there was the Spartacus Chess Club, which sort of was closer to the Communist Party. And despite the fact that at the time I had very little idea about communism, uh, I, I was part of because parents had connections to that. 
So what I'm saying is even something as trivial as chess was organized along those big political lines. So imagine what stayed for football or for sort of the things that they attract much larger uh, the, the constituents. Yeah? Uh, so they were extremely deeply rooted. These were one of the best organized uh, working class movements uh, that the world have seen. And they engaged in very, they, they were in a way quite down to earth. Now, Vienna had those massive public housing projects, did all sorts for schooling and so on, uh, but also were, were intellectually leading. And Hilferding comes out of that. And that movement gets essentially smashed by, by fascism. And in the 1930s, you have this weird episode, initially weird, where Hilferding, who in, in some ways I admired, becomes the major economic spokesperson for the social democrats. And he rejects and, uh, uh, is uh, a proto-Keynesian public employment program that Wojtynski has, has developed. And initially, that's very odd. Why would he do that? I mean, why would this sort of this forefront of the reformist but still socialist movement, why wouldn't they pick up on, on, on Keynesian ideas? On some level, that's very odd. And then at some point in, in reading on the side on that, I came across Wojtynski and his autobiography, the, the Stormy Passage, which is a fascinating thing. I think you have a question afterwards about Wojtynski, so I'm not going into full detail. But sort of this guy is fascinating. So he becomes the main author of that employment program for the unions. He's one of the major economists for the unions. But if you go back, he was a Russian socialist student, young student in 1905 or uh, when the first Russian revolution took place. So he was one of the student leaders of the Petrograd uprising at it. And I don't kid you, became the leader of the Petrograd Soviet of the unemployed, which of course today no one knows about, but that was there. And what did he do for the Petrograd Soviet of the unemployed? He tried to implement a public employment program. So in other words, you have a socialist Keynesianism or proto-Keynesianism in 1906 in Petrograd at the heart of the, the, the first Russian revolution. Yeah? And so once I had that, it, it was irresistible and I had to write something. Yeah, uh, you also asked me to briefly sketch out the, the main conclusion. So that WTB program that Wojtynski developed. Why, oh, can you define, why is it called the WTB uh, yeah. program? The for WTB our uh, stands for the three main authors, Wojtynski, Tarnow and Bade. Uh, Tarnow and Bade are two, uh, uh, a union leader and an SPD uh, member of parliament. So essentially they, the one the, the, the Tarnow, is the, the, the union support for that because the, the unions eventually supported that program. And Bad in a way was the, the leg uh, to the social democratic parliamentary faction such that it could get a hearing there. Um, and it essentially wanted to create a million jobs and had an order of magnitude of uh, three percentage points of GDP. In, in other words, not completely out of the scale, but something that we would recognize as, as uh, substantial. Um, 
And my core, so I'm in investigating two things in the paper. One is how much, how does Hilferding's rejection uh, of that program relate to his way of perceiving Marxist economics? Now, I purposefully don't want to get into the debate on whether that's proper Marxism or it, it's his Marxism and he was an important Marxism at the time. Uh, and the conclusion will be, actually his version of the labor theory of value ultimately endorses or regards as completely normal a gold standard or a version of the gold standard. Now, that's a, a completely non-trivial statement. Once you've read Polanyi or in, in contemporary economic history debates, the gold standard is interpreted as a mixture of a uh, exchange rate regime, but also it is fully recognized it comes with a policy package. It wants that the, the target is to make the exchange rate to gold. You have to subordinate monetary and fiscal policy ultimately to the goal of, of uh, maintaining that exchange rate. And so the, the gold standard is a shorthand for orthodox economic policies and uh, Polanyi, of course, in the Great Transformation is, is uh, most outspoken on that. But it's also clear in, in Barry Eichengreen, one of the, the most eminent uh, economic historians, who's essentially saying the gold standard was inconsistent with uh, parliamentary or modern democracies. The gold standard could run as long as you had a, 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 a elite or census-weighted election system where the elite could make up their minds. But once you have to, uh, if you want to justify your policies with respect to the entire population who might be affected by unemployment, it becomes unsustainable. Yeah? So for, for Eichengreen, there's a fundamental tension between democracy and the gold standard. Uh, and again, for, for Hilferding, not realizing that will be, in my view, a, a devastating failure. So the, the point, the, the argument here is it, it is rooted in, in Hilferding's Marxism. But then, and in a way replying to some other debates, I'm also asking, so how much was German democracy an outlier? And it's particularly replying to, to a book by, a very interesting book, I should say, by Sherry Berman, The Social Democratic Moment, where she's contrasting the, the Swedish and the, the German social democracy, the Swedes being interesting precisely because they were the ones that endorsed Keynesianism. Uh, they were abandoning Marx, but were quite lefty still on a, on a lot of, of scales. And of course, we are then leading in, in uh, establishing the most developed welfare states. Uh, and they early on endorsed versions of Keynesianism, got out of the gold standard and, and did deficit spending. And Sherry Berman is essentially arguing that the German Social Democrats were too Marxists. They were too orthodox, both in their theory of the state and in their theory of how the economy works. Uh, now, the, the flip side of that, which it doesn't draw fully out, of course, is that the, the, the less Marxist the Social Democratic Party uh, is, the more you would expect them to be open to, to Keynesian policies. And so then in the final part of the paper, I look at Britain, where you find the exact same problem that, that Hilferding and the Social Democrats have, meaning what should you do in this recession? Should you do deficit spending or, or should you stay orthodox? Britain is almost the opposite of Germany because it at that time did not have a Marxist tradition. And, and Ramsey MacDonald was all sorts of things, but he was not a Marxist. 
But you also had Keynes and you had the liberals who Keynes supported who were campaigning explicitly on a, on a, a public spending platform for the, for the election. So while the situation politically in Germany is very dif difficult in terms of implementing such a program, the, the, the Labour Party actually could have done it because that's what the, the liberals uh, uh, had campaigned for. But they essentially did the same as, as Hilferding. So there I'm saying it's actually not just about Marxism. Marxism was distinctly unhelpful, certainly the Hilferding version there. But the roots run deeper. And in part, it's sort of that, uh, that, that if you want pressure group mentality of parts of the labor movements, in particular the unions, and the inability to, if you want, develop an appropriate theory of socialist reform and transformation of the capitalist system, but specifically the capitalist state and, and how we can use the state for our purposes. This is excellent. And, and as you're talking um, about Wojtynski and Hilferding, it's hard for me not to to see your story in, in, in Wojtynski's story a bit, where it's uh, going back to your description of, of looking at the the theories of unemployment in, in European countries and encountering the Marxists who are like, well, unemployment is inevitable. It's almost sort of a just a law of capitalism. Um, and you go back and and look at Wojtynski encountering, making a, a, what seems to be like a, a very, I think we all agree, uh, reasonable, sensible, and important suggestion, policy proposal, and encountering, again, another kind of unexamined assumption that that, you know, the commodity theory of money and that that is an obstacle. And so, I, I, you know, I just I don't know if you see that uh, reflection of your own experience and in, in the experience of Wojtynski and maybe that's a, a part of the draw of, of your uh, yourself to his work. But uh, in addition to that, I wonder if you could, you know, uh, help us better understand the context into which um, Wojtynski is making this uh, proposal. Um, what was the situation in Germany? How did they get there? What was economic life like after the Treaty of Versailles and following the German defeat in the First World War? And what else was happening in Europe? Yeah, I, I think it's important to, to get some bit more of, of historic context. No? Uh, now, on the economic side, it's important to realize that for Europe, the interwar years by and large, were an economic disaster. I mean, it's quite different from the US where you often speak of the roaring 20s where you, you uh, had a boom, you had, if you want, uh, rapid technological progress, you also had financial bubbles developing and so on, but you had very strong growth. In Europe, it was a mess. It was a mess politically, it was a mess economically, and it was a mess financially. I start with the finances, and that, of course, brings us to Keynes and his economic consequences of the peace. The Versailles Treaty uh, essentially signed uh, culpability for the war to Germany, which isn't entirely wrong, but probably a bit overstated, uh, and therefore also imposed the reparations of it uh, on, on Germany. And while reparations morally make sense or may make sense, Keynes, of course, pointed out and resigned. He was one of the negotiators in the, on the British side, uh, advising the finance ministry uh, for the Versailles negotiations. 
And Keynes was uh, uh, pointing out that, well, if, if Germany were to, to pay these reparations, it first of all would have would require massive export surpluses. Now, these export surpluses would require other countries, i.e. Britain, the US, France, because who else would Germany trade so much that it has massive uh, foreign exchange from that? They would have to have massive current account deficits. And in other words, they employ less people because they're producing less because they're importing the stuff from Germany. So he says that, that's not going to work. And then there's sort of the, the issue of the scale. Now, the European countries at that point are settled, uh, are overburdened with debt. And debt, debt is, is sovereign debt, but it's essentially related to the war and it's to the, to the U.S., so we are in a situation where Britain, uh, while still in a way the major empire in London and the Bank of England and the City of London, the financial center, actually in terms of its balance sheet, is in no position to play the role of, of an informal land of last resort. And while we talk about the gold standard, of course, you can make a good argument that Actually, it was always a very managed gold standard. It was really a, a gold plus sterling standard because the Bank of England, to some extent, was, was managing things already in, in the 19th century. Uh, but Britain at that time was not in a position anymore to do that. Uh, but all the countries tried to get back onto gold because that was their normal. That was proper... Uh, economic policies and structures, and both in the Ricardian commodity money theory, but also implicit in the Marxist, though they don't usually like to point it out, uh, because money is also a produced commodity. I mean, if you get through the first 200 pages of Marxist capital, uh, gold is taking the role of the general equivalent, i.e. money, precisely because itself is a produced commodity, which embodies value and thus represents, uh, can represent value. For the Marxists, that's important essentially because if that were not the case, if the money was just a piece of paper or accounting entry, you essentially have a massive case of unequal exchange because you're all the time exchanging goods against things that are intrinsically worthless, yeah? in which case there's no change of equivalent. Yeah? Now, for the Ricardians or the liberal tradition, the, Sort of, there's other things, other reasons why that's important. It's essentially to, to simplify the economy. So, all the countries try to get back in on gold, but that implies essentially austerity policies when you have a crisis. Yeah? And so, whether it's Britain that enters gold with an overvalued exchange rate, uh, which uh, Keynes was critically about, or Germany, which tries to get on gold and at the same time uh, 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 pay uh, the debt. That creates permanent tension and a permanent uh, capital shortage. And capital, we really mean US dollars uh, shortage because they are indebted in dollars. Huh? And that creates tension throughout that period. So in Europe, we, we have uh, high unemployment in most countries throughout the 20s, uh, and thus social tensions remain high. You have a quite fragile, in particular, uh, I'm, I'm talking about uh, Germany here, you have a very fragile political system. Right? You have a massive 
social democratic movement that's deeply rooted in society, but only in certain segments in society. It's essentially the industrial towns. Uh, they, they made very little inroads on the countryside. Um, you have old elites uh, still be important in Germany. That means the old uh, landlords of the, the, the second serfdom in Eastern Europe, in Prussia, that are still dominating part of the state apparatus, in particular the military, and they were the ones that had initiated the, the First World War or, or contributed to it, and they are still uh, in power. You have a, a strange alliance of industrial capital, heavy industry with those uh, reactionary uh, uh, landlords, or the reactionary countryside that Bismarck had, had forged, but that maintains its way into the, the 20th century. Um, and you have initially quite marginal uh, uh, the, the rise of what, what would later become fascism. Now, the, the, the social demo, the, the labor movement has this, this tragic divide with the Russian revolution. And it uh, essentially cuts right through the social democrats. Né? And in Germany, that takes particular nasty forms uh, because it's essentially under a German right-wing uh, chancellor and the, and the Minister of Interior, Nölke, uh, that the, the Freikorps, which is essentially proto-fascist military units that are not under military command when they act, uh, that execute uh, Rosa Luxemburg and, and Karl Liebknecht, which are the leaders and the young generation of the, of the radical left. Now, that's before we have communists. Now, that's the Spartakusbund, who gave the name to my, uh, to my chess club uh, in Linz. Um, they were not at that point communists because the Communist Party only gets, gets founded later, but they are, they are still social democrats or the radical wing of, of the social democrats. They are to some extent, uh, Hilferding, as we'll see, is part of the independent social uh, democrats that split because of support of, uh, around the issue of support of war credit from the majority uh, social democrats. So if you want, you have an environment rich of social, political, and economic and financial tensions that's brewing up. Um, and you have these tensions maintained through the 20s. And then in uh, 29 and 31, the, the global financial crisis hits Germany. Uh, you, you get uh, bank failures from 29 with, uh, to 31 in a matter of of months, uh, the third largest uh, German bank uh, goes bankrupt and unemployment is then rising sharply in a, in a matter of, of a year from two to six million uh, people, if, if I remember the, the numbers correctly. I'm not sure whether I, I fully uh, addressed your, your question, but so much for the background. Yeah, you did. And it, it really puts into sharp relief what what a, a a massive union-backed um, public works pro proposal and program would mean in a in a intense situation like this. So yeah, I, I think you made that really clear and vivid. I, I'm wondering if we can 
circle back and talk a little bit more about Vladimir Wojtynski um, and his <laughs> um, his fascinating autobiography. So you 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 told us a little bit about his origins, but maybe you can go a little bit more deeply into um, into his story and yeah, where he comes from and where he goes, and it, it's it really is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think he's brilliant, and I think someone at some point has to make a movie about him. Uh, so Wojtynski is, uh, is a Russian Jew, comes from an intellectual background, becomes a student leader uh, in, in the, uh, the uprising, the, the first Russian revolution in, in sp- autumn, spring 2005, and then early 2006. 1905, 1906. <laughs> um, and he, he gets involved in that. And he's at that point actually working with the Bolsheviks. Um, it, it, I exposed, I, I have to say, I was surprised that he doesn't mention the Bund at that point. Now, we, of course, nowadays think of, of the Russian social democrats in terms of Bolsheviks and Mensheviks, because that's what matters in the in the Russian Revolution. The Bolsheviks in 1905-06 were a non-category. Even Trotsky wasn't, uh, didn't know that he was a Bolshevik or would be. But what you have is the Bund, which is a, a, a Jewish socialist organization uh, that is much more along the lines of uh, sort of the, the, the European social democracy, meaning they're, they're mass organizations. They are not clandestine, avant-garde, revolutionary organizations like uh, the Bolsheviks would be later. Uh, so they, like, like the Austrians, would, would uh, sort of have organizations throughout society um, and uh, uh, sort of they play in the open. No? They, they are not clandestine, not conspiratory organizations. And they are a main driving force of that, of that revolution. Uh, but I, I actually don't remember Wojtynski uh, uh, mentioning them, but it's ha- and they, they're mostly Jewish. Um, and they would, if you want, become a, a, a wing of uh, anti-Zionist uh, Jewish international socialists, if you want. And in, in Britain, the Jewish voice for labor uh, is still, if you want, an echo of that, and that may not concern you, but that was important for us in Britain because uh, the right went uh, after Corbyn uh, under the heading of he's an anti-Semite. And the, 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 the Jewish voice for Labour, of course, was up in arms against it because for them being a Jewish socialist never meant fully endorsing Israel necessarily. Um, the, either way, so he's, he's part of that radical tradition, uh, works with the Bolsheviks, essentially because they're radical. Uh, he's sort of in some ways very pragmatic and wants to help and starts building uh, those uh, work around the, the Petrograd Soviet and the unemployment, uh, unemployed, which I understand he helped to set up. They do a little bit of... Um, uh, of public employment, but mostly they provide uh, public food kitchens and other things. But so they're, they're doing actually work, actual work on the street. But of course, this whole thing doesn't live long enough to, uh, to make much of a difference because the, that revolution gets squashed and it gets squashed brutally. Yeah? 
and essentially the tradition of the Bund gets almost wiped out because their mass organization and their internal democratic structures are just no match for the authoritarian Tsarist regime that we have afterwards. And that in a way creates an environment where that Leninist organization actually becomes effective and that will then later become important uh, in, in, the, in, in the Russian revolution. So Wojtynski is sent uh, first to prison and then to Siberia and then for 10 years is, is in Siberia. And in spring uh, uh, 1917, uh, with the, what do you want, the, the, the bourgeois phase of the Russian revolution, he as tens of thousands of others gets released, political prisoners get released from Siberia. And he goes back to Petrograd to work for the Petrograd Soviet again. Uh, now, we are in spring 1917. So when, I, when we say Petrograd Soviet, we mean Mensheviks. We don't mean Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks become strong in autumn and their rise is rapid. Yeah? Uh, and Wojtynski, I mean, his autobiography with like all autobiographies are a little bit self-congratulatory at times or self-aggrandizing. So it's not, but I mean, he has a life that's worth aggrandizing, I have to say. Um, so it's not always fully clear where, where, where his exposed interpretation kicks in. But initially, he seemed quite indifferent to work with the Bolsheviks and Mensheviks, because in a way, he's not, not ideologically enough. So I don't know whether that was true of his younger self at that point. And gets involved with, with uh, that Soviet. Uh, works with them in various administrative capacities. And when the Bolsheviks get to power, essentially he and the Mensheviks have to flee because the Bolsheviks are not very forgiving. And it's clear that he's coming out of a sort of social democracy that has a broader notion of democracy than, than the Bolsheviks. So he flees to Georgia, which briefly is for two years or so an independent socialist republic it's dominated by the Mensheviks. And he joins what wants to be the diplomatic uh, service of Georgia uh, in this sent abroad to essentially advertise uh, the existence of, of Georgia to other states such that they would recognize it. So he's sent to Italy. So there's only two problems there. One is that the Bolsheviks take over Georgia and Mussolini takes over Italy. So he has to leave Italy and via Paris eventually comes to Germany where he works as an applied economist and actually in economic history he cited because he has a, a very descriptive uh, book Die Welt in Zahlen which is essentially a statistic compendium which economic historians cite quite a bit. So he's a pragmatic applied economist uh, and if you read his work around the WTB plan, it's essentially driven by the urge to do something. Right? You, you can't, you won't stand by where you see the working class getting unemployed. And there's also a sort of, on the one hand, human empathy, but also a political agenda is that for him, as long as you have mass unemployment, you may get rebellion out of desperation, but you'll not get it properly you don't get the left on the offensive as long as you have mass unemployment and you need to offer specific uh, things to, to those people in, in need as opposed to... So he's not, a, he's not an accelerationist. 
No, not, not at all. He, he's the opposite. Uh, you, you need to give something tangible to them uh, as opposed to the promise of a, uh, of a socialist utopia. Huh? Uh, and his work then is, when you read it, quite empirically driven. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of data in there. His, his, when he discusses the, the, the employment effect and the costs, what are the, the average costs of most of employment, not very surprising, would be in construction, housing, roads, bridges. I mean, what we are talking in, in 2008 is it, it, all in there. And he looks what are the sectoral uh, hourly wages of workers, of bricklayers, uh, and of, of, of uh, people in, in, in the construction sector. What is the state currently paying for unemployment insurance uh, and, and benefits? And so wants to, to get his, his data on that straight. Um, what he's doing there is very clearly proto-Keynesian. Uh, he makes a sustained case uh, that, that you should do that, even if it is deficit finance. That said, analytically, he is not quite Keynesian. There, there's no well-understood theory of the multiplier. I mean, he was aware of Keynes, had read him. He actually also had a, a letter exchange uh, with Keynes, but he, it, uh, I mean, he was writing in... in 29 to 31, meaning way before the general theory, way before Keynes had the, the theory of the multiplier straight. So I, I'm, I'm, my ask here is high, but in that sense, theoretically, he wasn't fully advanced. But in terms of economic policy, he was there. And that's also recognized in the economic history uh, literature. The earlier version of the WTB plan were much more, if you want, monetary financing. It was much more tweaking around the gold standard, the reserves that banks would hold, and thus were vulnerable politically in that you couldn't quite do that without the consent, active or passive, of France and, and the US if you did that. And so initially he wanted an international program, uh, not just a, a German one. And as it became clear that that was not forthcoming, uh, he more and more uh, moved towards a domestic financing where there would be, if temporary, financing by the, the German central bank. So in other words, it is, is a, to some extent a, a central bank financed uh, uh, public employment program. Uh, Wojtynski then uh, uh, tries to get it through uh, in the Social Democrats, uh, manages to convince the, the German trade unions, which is non-trivial. Yeah? It's non-trivial in the sense that, that in the division of labor between the party and the unions, and they were closely intertwined, the division of labor essentially was that the unions uh, do the workplace organizing, they strike for higher wages, but legislation is by and large the business of the party, yeah? and thereby also macroeconomic policy, and certainly whatever international currency arrangement is not traditional, the, the, the territory of the unions. But in a way, they got desperate because it got their, it was their unions, that their, their members that got unemployed and they, they were losing members when unemployment was, was spiking, both to the communists, but also to, to the Nazis. Uh, and, and so they felt the need for action, but they also in some ways were more 
pragmatic and less ideological than the, the social democrats. Now, in some ways, they were more to the right uh, politically than, than the social democrats, but in this case, they were, were more Keynesian. Hilferding, as the main spokesman, Hilferding was twice finance minister and after finance capital was sort of the Marxist authority and then followed in the footsteps of Karl Kautsky as the main ideologue of the German social democracy, uh, essentially was blocking it, was shooting it down both in the front, but also behind the scenes in the social democratic uh, parliament fiction. I, I presume we'll talk a bit more about Hilferding and his background after this. Um, and so it doesn't go anywhere. The, the Nazis will pick up on it. Um, but mind you, all this is happening in 31, 32. Uh, so this is literally a year before the Nazis take power. Huh? And then in 33, uh, uh, Wojtynski, of course, has to leave the country. I mean, if you're a Russian Jewish socialist, you couldn't be much further up on the hit list of the Nazis. So he gets out just in time uh, and goes uh, to, 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 to Switzerland, to Geneva, and works there for what would become the ILO, the International Labour Organization. And what he does for them is he develops public employment programs. He doesn't get a permanent job there because the Soviet Union is blocking it because they want, don't want such a mainly um, counter-revolutionary in the ILO. So he doesn't get a job there and eventually goes to the US. And in the US, uh, starts working for the Roosevelt administration, uh, works for the Bureau of Labor Statistics and Labor Statistics is his section exactly his home territory, and on the BLS webpage, you still find links to some of his work. However, I have to say that uh, Tarnish is a bit his, this glorious story that I'm telling you. He, I mean, he's a Menshevik. A lot of his comrades get killed by the, by the Bolsheviks, so understandably, he turns anti-communist. Uh, but he goes further. He endorses uh, American liberalism, and at the end of his life, in the, in the 50s and 60s, goes to Latin America and to East Asia to preach the advantages of liberal capitalism. So that guy ends up going to, I don't know, Brazil and Vietnam to tell them how great uh, <laughs> America is. So that's a bit painful uh, at the yeah. end, if, if you read the, <laughs> the, the, the biography. But it's a fascinating story. But ultimately, the reason why I'm so fascinating is, but it is you glimpse the possibilities of a socialist Keynesianism there. I mean, we tend to associate Keynesianism, and my Marxist friends would say that, as an attempt to save capitalism, saving capitalism from itself. But there's no question that this is what you can use Keynesianism for, and this is effectively what has happened with the global financial crisis 2008. I would argue with the with the New Deal, it actually was more about transforming capitalism than about saving it, or at least as much. Uh, but uh, so in my view, you can use Keynesianism for all sorts of things. But when Wojtynski was doing what he was doing, you didn't have Keynes yet. I mean, he hadn't written the general theory yet. Uh, it wasn't necessary, uh, necessary to associate Keynesianism with the Liberal Party in Britain. Yeah? You had unknown to everyone else because he was writing in Poland. You had at the same time Michael Kalecki 
essentially developing big piles of Keynesian analysis, the multiplier effect in particular, very cleanly already in there with a much more Marxist background. And you have Wojtynski, who, whatever he does afterwards, clearly at that time is a serious social democratic reformist as the Austro-Marxists at the time were. So at that time, in a way, history is a lot more open. Uh, and you could imagine, uh, so if Hilferding had fully endorsed it and had said, well, actually, this is complementary to the state theory that he and Otto Bauer had been developing. And if we want to have a, a endorse uh, uh, bourgeois parliamentary democracy and the social democrats in interwar Germany was the only party who was unreservedly in favor of parliamentary uh, democracy. If you pair that with the Keynesian socialist agenda, actually that that could help us do what we are doing. Yeah? So it, it's in a way that moment of openness that to me is so fascinating that instead of having that firm association of Keynesianism as something pro-capitalist, uh, have it as part as a uh, sort of socialist agenda. I'm curious, did, um, in his writings, did Wojtynski cite precedents? Did he cite Louis Blanc and the, you know, the, the French workshops or anything like that? I'm not aware of that at all. Uh, there's, of course, big parts of, of, what, of his Russian writings that, that I can't read. But that's not his style. Wojtynski is not an ideologue. I think both in his own mentality, but certainly the way he wanted to come across. I mean, he's also, if you want, a, a proto-Keynesian in terms of the technocratic attitude, yeah? He wants to say, guys, here are the numbers. There are 6 million people unemployed. This is not going to lead to inflation if you do public employment because actually there's 4 million unemployed more than you had two years ago. So you can employ up to 4 million without inflationary pressure. And these are the costs that you will get given that wages. Yeah? So that, that's his discourse. It, it's much more technocratic. And it's also the discourse that across the political spectrum, but a lot of the Keynesians would adopt uh, in, in the coming years, in, in the U.S. in Britain. Why didn't Rudolf Hilferding see Wojtynski's work as complementary? What, what conclusions do you arrive at in your read on the biography of Hilferding? Yeah, it, that's a, a very good and fascinating question. Uh, my short answer will be it's deeply rooted in his Marxist theory. But let, let me give you the long answer just because it's so fascinating. So Hilferding is part of uh, the Austro-Marxist movement. So he's coming out of, of the Austrian social democracy and in particular, a fascinating group of essentially young radical students in Vienna at that time. Uh, that's uh, Otto Bauer, Karl Renner, Max Adler, next to Hilferding, and they would have their own journals. And Vienna at the time is an intellectual hothouse. I mean, you have the, the, the grand uh, guys of, of the Austrian school there. You have uh, Böhm Bawerk there. Uh, you have Famises there. You even have Hayek there. I mean, I'm not getting even started with the philosophers and artists. 
But so Hilferding and those young Marxists, they sit in the seminars of, of the Austrians. Uh, and one of the first uh, things that Hilferding writes uh, is a reply to Bernbawiak's uh, criticism of Marxist theory. Now, and that's still widely cited. I actually don't think that is particularly good, what he's writing there, but it's still impressive and it's sort of good Marxism. It, it's not good in the sense that while Bernbawiak is, of course, very polemical and critical, he has some serious points, in particular around the transformation problem. Yeah. The tension uh, between what the Marxists call prices of production, where of uniform profit rates, and uh, the, the labor values, where you don't have uniform profit rates, where it's all about labor values. And that is a real problem for Marxism, for Marxist economics, and that would become a big issue in the 1970s and, and lead to, to all sorts of value theory wars. Yeah? But Hilferding essentially says, Bernbarek is too, too much concerned about explaining relative prices, but as Marxists, we're really interested in exploitation. Yeah? But it just doesn't settle it. I mean, it's correct, but it, it doesn't settle all the criticism that Bernbarek raises. Uh, but Hilferding is a, he studied medicine. I mean, he's a doctor. This is sort of intellectual enthusiasm and, and political commitment that gets him and others into these debates. Uh, and I mean, it's still a substantial and, and widely cited work. But then he writes Finance Capital, and that is really an impressive work. Uh, and, and again, it's, it's outside his own studies. It's not that this is his PhD. It does that beyond uh, learning about bones and muscles and the like. Um, and what he does there is, is a restatement of Marxist theory, but it takes finance very seriously. It takes finance seriously because in the German experience, finance banks are much more important than in the Anglo-Saxon countries, in particular because Germany is late industrialized, Gerschenkron and what have you afterwards, um, where the banks are used to finance heavy industry, uh, pharmaceuticals that need lots of capital investment. Uh, so they, they need uh, big banks. And so they become important. But because that's important, he has to go back and ask, where does money come from? What is the role of money? What's the role of banks? And a lot of what he writes there is very, very sharp and very innovative. Yeah? You can read discussions of options and option pricing there, uh, net present value calculations. <laughs> it's all in there, but, but we all had to read up around the global financial crisis. Uh, and he also has a, a theory of endogenous money in there. In his case, it's around bills of exchange. And bills of exchange, essentially more of them are issued in a boom because there, there's more demand for them and more of them are issued because, and here comes the Keynesian element, because essentially the business outlook is, is more positive and therefore the, the, uh, the, 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 the liquidity preferences decline. Uh, but for Hilferding, that's essentially uh, sort of the action around the supply side fundamentals that are given by labor values. So there is a, uh, there is a dynamics of the financial sector and it's pro-cyclical, it amplifies the boom and consequently the, the crisis, but it's, if you want, a cycle around the labor values and, and the production side. 
And ultimately in his story, you need gold because you need the real stuff that has genuine value to, to represent money. And where you see that is in international transactions. In other words, that's the gold standard. And so he explicitly says what we have here is the experimental proof of the labor theory of value, uh, an objective uh, value theory. It's that internationally you need gold for transactions. So the Keynesian says, well, this is a policy regime that has all sorts of implications. Hilferding says, no, that's the, the true nature of things of the capitalist relations of productions. Um, and his crisis theory, I have to say, is, is unfortunately quite disappointing to read uh, because it's essentially a restatement of Marx's analysis of the contradictions of capitalism that essentially says there's unresolvable contradictions and eventually they will so bad that there will be a socialist revolution. It's not the crisis theory that gives you any entrance, entry points for economic policy. It's not a, a crisis theory that would help you if you're the finance minister uh, in, in 1929, as Hilferding later was, that, that would guide you to what you can do. Yeah? I mean, it's, it's essentially a story of capitalist doom and self-destruction that you can watch with a bit of schadenfreude that you can afterwards do the revolution and take over the ruins. Um, but then he also has a fascinating uh, analysis of, of international aspects. And that's an implicit reply to Bernstein and the, the revisionists, uh, where he emphasizes that those finance capital, because they also get tied up with the state, will give rise to dangerous imperialist uh, dynamics. And of course, Lenin would draw very heavily on that later. Yeah? So in other words, this is at the time really cutting edge Marxism and, and really cool in terms of it, what it weaves together. Uh, Hilferding then goes uh, to, uh, to Germany, uh, leaves Austria, uh, works closely with, with Kautsky. And in the, uh, during the, the First World War, he keeps party discipline, but he's highly critical of the social democrat support of the war, precisely because what he had written in, in Finance Capital. And he eventually, with a two handful of other uh, social democrat MPs, get kicked out of the, of the social democratic party because uh, they, they are too critical of, of uh, the SPD's support of the war credits. And so Hilferding, and ironically also Bernstein, the, the main revisionists, are then part of the independent Social Democrats that would uh, exist until I think 22, and in the first elections, uh, uh, in, in the last elections where they ran, were almost as strong a matter of, of two percentage points, so almost as strong as the Social Democrats, yeah? and they were essentially the, the anti-war, more radical fraction, and they would then split over how influential uh, the position with respect to the Soviet Union and in how communists, and they would essentially split halfway through to part joining the, the communists and part joining the, the, the social democrats. Hilferding also develops the concept of organized capitalism. So, so he keeps up with what's going on and notices that the state is becoming more and more important and involved. And in particular during the war, but he says that also goes on afterwards. So precisely because you have those big 
uh, uh, trusts and, and industrial groups organized by finance capital, they get so big that they start cooperating with the state and debt for Hilferding is an entry point because at some point he says, nowadays, essentially, if you nationalize three leading banks, you have nationalized half of the industry, of, of the big industry. Yeah? So for him, that's an entry point for socialist policy. Economically, uh, this is stabilizing. The concentration is stabilizing capitalism because it stabilizes prices and gives more, if you want, rational planning aspect to prices. Hilferding, because he's a reformist, uh, is one of those that advocate for the social democrats to, to reach out beyond, if you want, the blue-collar working class. And that interwar Germany, but all over Europe, means reaching out in, in both to the, if you want, white-collar, working class, but also to the countryside, to the peasants. And that, other than in Sweden, remains a big unresolved issue for all social democratic parties that they're essentially not getting into the countryside, which at that time, electorally, is, is a big problem. So in some ways, he's very open and, and he, he is, supports uh, uh, parliamentary democracy and argues for a parliamentary road to socialism. So in a way, his state theory is, is advanced or, or goes beyond orthodox Marxism, but his economics doesn't. Eh? And then when he finds himself in these debates uh, in, in 29 and, and uh, 30, 31, he essentially can't understand how you want to get rid of all this uh, without the gold standard, because that's ultimately the natural sort of things. And you can read wording there that says, you can't solve the fundamental contradictions of capitalism with a bit of, of government spending. Yeah? And so in that say the, the Marxist theory here, rather than enabling uh, sort of creative strategies for the left, becomes a big stumbling block that essentially allows them to not see that uh, possible entry for, uh, for Keynesian policies or instrumentalizing Keynesian strategies uh, for a, a socialist uh, uh, agenda. And he goes so far that in, uh, when he comments in the, the main social democratic newspaper, the forwards, on the breakdown of the gold standard in Britain, he uses that as, as an argument to say, well, you see, it only leads to disaster if you try to do funny things. You, you, you first of all need to get back to gold to do anything. Yeah? Um, I, I have to say two, two things about the gold standard and, and its breakdown here. Now from an economic theory, but, but also from a sociological theory of money, it's fascinating how the gold standard goes down in Britain. Yeah? It's a strike in a military base it's the Ivan Gordon uh, naval fleet that goes on strike against their wage cuts. Now, these are not regular workers. These are soldiers. They are not allowed to strike. So what you have here is a mutiny. It's not just a strike. It's a mutiny. And with all debates that they have and all that Keynes told you that the gold standard is, is actually a bad idea, it's when the soldiers start the mutiny, the gold standard breaks down. Yeah? So think about, I mean, it's, it's hard not to think of this in terms of, doesn't it tell you something that international money and exchange relations have A, something to do with class struggle, 
they are striking about wages, but also have a deep relation to the state. It's once the military apparatus goes on strike, the gold standard breaks down. Yeah. So uh, admittedly, the, the, the going off the gold standard in, in Sweden or the US is a different story, but it's hard not, not to, to see that in there once you've thought a little bit about what money is, that this has something very deep to do with the state, but there's also a class conflict dimension to it. But Hilverding doesn't see any of that. The gold standard is the natural order of things because money needs to be baked by value and gold is a produced commodity, thus it's okay. And that then blocks the, uh, the WTB plan for the social democrats. The Nazis are not shy, they take it over, partly because they're interested, partly essentially because they see that this can drive a wedge between the unions and the, the social democrats. And they tied the, at that moment, the Nazis flirt, try to flirt with the unions. A few months later, they put them into the prisons and concentration camps, of course. Uh, but at that time, they used it. Uh, but essentially, the, the social democrats don't go anywhere with it. And within a few months, they, they are also in, in the, the prisons and of course, Hilferding dies in a Gestapo prison in, in 41. And the, the Hilferding argument on behalf of the party was that we cannot do anything. We must let the crisis play out, right? And that's, that's what happened in the crisis. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe this, this clearly wasn't the only, yeah. <laughs> the, the only causal factor, but it, but it is tragic and haunting to think uh, of what a, a support for this program might have led to instead. If I might just, there's, what you say is perfectly correct. There's however two complications that I would want to add. Yeah? I mean, it's very clear in Hilverding and his close uh, collaborator, Naftali, uh, there, there is an understanding that you have to let the crisis run its course and afterwards you can do something. And Naftali explicitly says it's in the boom that you can try to do reforms, but not in the downswing. I mean, you, you don't fix a capitalist crisis, you let the market forces work itself out. Uh, but there's two complicating factors. The first is hyperinflation. The, 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 the Germany, of course, had experienced as part of its monetary troubles hyperinflation in the early 20s, which were devastating, I would argue, more for the middle classes than for the working class. But of course, it, it led to, to big scars. And so that argument gets rehearsed. It gets rehearsed at a time when it becomes patently absurd. So, so Naftali is literally warning in, in 31, late 31, against the danger of the public employment program because it would be inflationary. In 31, you have, I've, I've looked up the numbers for writing the paper, you already have minus 10% inflation. You have serious deflation. Yeah? So the, 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 uh, the pruning deflation is already fully biting. Yeah? So it's clearly not the, the issue. The other issue is uh, the foreign policy and the, uh, the war reparations. The Social Democrats did except the, the Versailles settlement. So in principle, meaning with the qualification that it has to be bearable for Germany, we're committed to, to war reparations. And going off the gold or, or giving up on austerity 
in that context could also be seen as, if you want, an international affront against France in particular. So it is more complicated, but at the core is this idea that capitalist crises will fix themselves. And that's very different from Wojtynski, what Wojtynski is. Wojtynski has clear elements of the date deflation theory that Irving Fisher would formulate. That is a, in the current situation where Germany is over-indebted, you want more inflation, not less. That's part of getting out. You also don't want a one or five percent. You actually need serious inflation to help firms deleverage. So previous historians and people who've studied this moment and the WTB plan um, have have interpreted it differently than you have. Can you talk about those interpretations and and where they might have gone off course? What they're missing? I'm not sure whether there are a lot of substantive difference. Because I'm interested in the possibility of a socialist Keynesianism, I have a different angle and I have a different context. But it's sort of the WTP plan is not widely known outside a few professional economic historians. And there it is. I mean, once you're sensitivized to the term, you essentially see it in all discussions of the of the Great Depression in Europe. Yeah? So if you look at Kindleberger and at Eichengreen and things like that, it's there and they would essentially all agree if there was any serious German Keynesian plan, that's the WTB. It wasn't quite the only one. There was also somewhat less important one that was coming out a bit more of business cycle, the Lautenbach plan, that goes in a similar direction. Uh, but so that's that's there. Uh, and if you uh, read the, the whatever Harold James or, or Robert Gates, they, they all essentially regard it as a in principle, via, viable and uh, economically viable, I should say. There's big debates on whether it's, it's politically was ever viable, uh, but economically plausible uh, proto-Keynesian strategy. Um, that, and that's also clear with the authors, uh, Eichengreen, uh, for example. I mean, th- these are Keynesians. Yeah? I mean, they're coming out of the technocratic traditions and for them in a way the puzzle is why, why didn't the, the, the Germans uh, do it um, where I'm different is that I, I want to say that there would have been a specific socialist route to that that comes as part of a, of a grander uh, socialist strategy and in particular one that would have complemented the Austro-Marxist uh, I mean, the, the, the Austro-Marxists tried to formulate a radical socialist but democratic, i.e. parliamentary strategy. And Otto Bauer for quite a while uh, was heading what is often called the International 2.5. They just didn't want to accept that split between the communists and the social democrats. Uh, which in uh, whatever, 1920 and 21 is very honorable and actually at that point maybe not completely absurd, but of course a, a few years later it is a futile attempt. Yeah? But if you want to do such a, a socialist transformation, your problem is, so what do you do with the state? How do you instrumentalize it? And that was a big problem for socialists at that time. And, and for good reason. I mean, there 
experience of the state had been a very nasty one. In the 1880s, under the late Bismarck, the social democrats were outlawed. Now, they actually weren't fully outlawed because there were some states where the social democrats weren't outlawed except for the national elections, but the regional elections, they were allowed and so on. So the details were complicated, but I mean, it, it was clear that there was repression. It was clear that the old uh, aristocratic elite had not only no sympathy, but also no tolerance for, for socialists. And in that sense, of course, it's difficult how, how you can think of, of, of states as, as something positive that, that you can use. And initially, and that's, of course, a, a critique of, of a lot of the Marxists, a lot of the reformists of the social democrats were, was very ad hoc. I mean, it was collective bargaining and unemployment insurance and, and, and state pensions and something like that. But it, it wasn't really part of a, of a reformist strategy other than the Bernstein version, which essentially says, well, the state is relatively neutral and once we have the majority, we can do things, which obviously quite doesn't do justice to, to the complexity and nastiness of, of actually existing and capitalist states. And sort of, if you come from the neo-Weberians, uh, Charles Tilly and, and Michael Mann, states historically are war-making machines. Uh, and they essentially incorporate other social groups because they need them for more effective war-making and in particular for more effective financing of the wars. That's how they initially the British state needed the merchants, and then with conscription and, and mass armies, you needed the local population and you needed to be to the, on their side. And thus, in that story, the state makes concessions that then take on a life of their own. Uh, and that's the problem that our socialists have. How, how do they do that? Huh? Uh, and ultimately, the, the Austro-Marxists were not successful in that because they were essentially... Marxist radicals in theory, but quite skillful reformists on weekdays, but that there was a big unresolved tension between them. Yeah? Uh, and Keynesianism would have offered a quite specific entry point there. And it would also have allowed socialists to develop a more meaningful theory and narrative of finance, financial crisis. Because, as I said, for, for Hilferding and essentially for a lot of the other Marxist literature, finance is sort of something that comes on top of those class conflicts and exploitation and then complicated things. But whatever you do with finance can't fix the basic problems. Now, from a Keynesian perspective, it's not clear why, my, why finance is less fundamental. I mean, that doesn't take away that you can't regard class conflict as very important, but finance is, is very much built in there and in, in Marx's uh, MC M prime, the, the uh, circulation of commodities, of course, money is also important. So if you think of people like Jim Crotty, there are attempts to, to build Marx further in that direction where, where finance and money have a quite fundamental role. But it would have allowed uh, the, the socialists to appreciate more how important that financial crisis is. And that once you have a full-blown financial crisis, that's not something that's going to go away quickly. I mean, once you have a debt overhang, once you have a lot of bankrupted firms, that's going to leave long-lasting scars on your economy. 
in, in that sense, you, you need entry points. But it also, it, it, I mean, of course, analyzing, discussing finance and come up, coming up with financial specific proposals for financial reforms takes a lot of energy because it comes with its own language. You have to understand things that are complicated. And uh, I mean, think of the, uh, the, the all the financial instruments that we discussed it in 2008. No? I mean, these are things that are quite re remote from a lot of people's uh, lives. Thus, it, it requires some effort. But that effort, to some extent, also comes if you want, with new instruments and potential instruments and with new areas of maneuver, if you realize that there's something you can do in that area, no? you can use the central bank to either finance governments or to finance development banks that then have a specific agenda, say, decarbonizing the economy. No? So in other words, it, it's, uh, it, it requires quite a bit of effort, but it... it it increases the set of your economic weaponry to some extent. Yeah? So in that sense, I, I think it's very important uh, that, that uh, socialists engage with it. So you've walked yourself into our, our last question, which is, and I'm sure there's not one simple straightforward answer to this. We have to think about various contexts, you know, whether are we, where are we, are we talking about Europe? Are we talking about the United States? Are we talking about the global South? But that said, what for you are some of the the lessons, the deep lessons uh, of this story uh, for a contemporary left moving forward? I mean, I guess the short version we just had, and that is socialists have to take finance seriously because it's not just a minor complication. That's a big part of, of the capitalist system. And so any systematic strategy of socialist transformation needs to think about what you do with corporations, how you structure the workplace, economic democracy, whatever you want to talk about there. But it also needs to think about the financial sector, because this is where a big part of the mess is coming from. Now, circumstances, of course, are quite different now. Not only... Is finance very different, but also Keynesianism has a very different stint than in, in, in 1930. So let me start with the Keynesianism. Now, in 1930, initially no one was doing Keynesianism. Right? I mean, it, it, it was sort of a revolutionary mindset for all sorts of people. Even Keynes struggled to convince the, the, the Treasury, where he had a quite prominent role to, to go in that direction. And when Roosevelt did it, it was trial and error. And until very late, Roosevelt talked about balancing the budget. Now, thankfully, he wasn't doing it. His policy was different, but the, the theory <laughs> sounds quite horrible sometimes what he's saying there. I mean, Roosevelt compensated it by activism. He just wanted to do something in, in a way like Wojtynski. Yeah? And because he was so much activist, he didn't care that much about the balance sheet ultimately. But it was quite late that the Roosevelt administration actually rhetorically endorsed budget deficits. Uh, so at that time, that was all very new. And in this sense, I want to emphasize, actually, there were some social democrats, whether you go to Sweden or to Wedinsky, you or to Michael Kalecki, there were some socialists that were there and, and were talking Keynesianism. 
and afterwards it, it deliberately fully uh, incorporated him. Now, nowadays, that's very different. I mean, Keynesianism is much more regarded as a toolbox and as we've seen is sort of in a piecemeal way appropriated by all sorts of different political directions. And much as we can have a socialist Keynesianism, you can have a Keynesianism of, of the financial elite. And to some extent, not the full extent, I should say, but to some extent, we've seen that after 2008. Huh? If you read Keynes, there's not a single word, I think, on, on bailing out banks. Eh? The focus is on fiscal policy to stabilize employment. Along the way, if it's useful, you can do something with the banks. It's probably not useful if they go or go under, but that's not the focus. Eh? But in 2008, it was a very big part of the focus. Now, to be fair, there was also quite a bit of Keynesianism there, I mean, in, in the sense of employment, program, but not all the way. And certainly there was not any sustained commitment to full employment. Full employment of the banks. Yeah, but in that sense, it's, I mean, they, they are not, they don't care about employment. They care about balance sheets. And in that no, sense, I know. Yeah. I was making a joke. <laughs> they wanted to make, make sure the bankers yeah. were fully yeah. employed. That, that's what I was saying. In, in, in that sense, I'm with you. Um, so, so in that sense, it's clear that you can do lots of different things. And, and in that sense, it's a lot less revolutionary. But there's a certain legacy on the radical left to downgrade uh, Keynesianism as reformism. Right? My point is, you're sure, <laughs> let's do a bit of reformism, but there's all sorts of different types of reformism. But of course, also the role of finance has changed quite a bit. I mean, the, the gold standards, of course, doesn't have the, the same role. Uh, it's not a reference point. But I guess there's two or three areas where it becomes immediately important. Uh, one is the, the, the whole role of the, the central bank. No? And, and one of the things where we've seen it in the euro crisis was that uh, the, the euro crisis in a way was, was the, the, the echo of the global financial crisis. But different from the global financial crisis, it was mostly played out not on private debt, but on public debt. So it was the euro area member states or the, the, the southern periphery that got into trouble. And they got into trouble to a large extent because the ECB did not say, okay, you are member states of the euro area, thus in the case of need, I will support my governments, which is what the, the Federal Reserve had done in the US, what the Bank of England did in Britain, what the Bank of Japan did in Japan the euro area for a long time did not say that. Quite on the contrary, they said to Greece, it ran up when things were escalating, well, but you really have to balance your budget, yeah? which of course is a signal to the financial market. They're going to let it for, uh, uh, drop the value of, of Greek sovereign debt further and therefore let's, let's short it, let, let's speculate against it. Yeah? And it was essentially with Draghi's famous word of the ECB will do everything it takes to maintain the euro. Plus that it was that they had the outright monetary transaction facility, which they actually never used because the words was enough. Essentially because financial markets knew from the US and Britain and where have you that if, if the central bank wants this, it can. Yeah? And then the government uh, spreads declined and, and things were relatively stable. And then during the COVID crisis, the ECB essentially preemptively set up these funds to make clear that they will not want a replay of the euro crisis. Yeah? Uh, it, it related to that is the question of uh, 
because that's ultimately what's behind it is, should the central bank fund governments? Should they fund it directly? Should we use monetary expansion to, to, uh, to, to finance uh, public programs? And the answer to that is, depends on circumstances. Of course you can. There's nothing wrong with it. That's, what, that's how we fix whatever fixing we did about the global financial crisis. And that is, again, what happened during COVID. Once the government does substantial expansion because there are social needs, whether that's because of the crisis or because of a pandemic, of course you can do it. And it does not cause inflation or any other horrible things. Yeah? Now, that said, of course, uh, th th there is a bit of a delicate thing if you open those floodgates, because then essentially uh, every politician could potentially tap into the central bank for whatever uh, interest they have, which of course often would not be progressive. So it, it is clearly delicate, but economically it depends on how big the social problems are and how big unemployment is on whether that works or doesn't work. Uh, and so if you think of decarbonizing the economy, where we need a massive investment program beyond the scale of what we are currently imagining if we want to uh, meet climate targets, of course you should use central bank funding. In a way, it's a no-brainer. Yeah? I mean, if there's massive needs, of course you can do it unless sort of you had full employment, which is very clearly a point where it would crowd out other activity. But if we're reaching full employment and we have not decarbonized and we are not on track of the decarbonization of the economy, you have to shift employment. Yeah? So even under these circumstances, I, I would support it. And if inflation is the price of shifting away from fossil fuels, so be it. Yeah? Okay, Th that was the, the, the part about central banks and that's probably the most important one. But I could also talk about changes in the financial sector, but I think in the interest of time, I will not do that, but trust that what I said is, was interesting enough. We uh, would probably love to talk to you for, for a few more hours. I, I'm, this has been amazing. I wonder if you could close us out with maybe a word to our comrades, right? The Marxist folks who uh, may remain resistant to the idea that, that these ideas and insights that uh, Wojtynski uh, and you talk about in terms of the positive role of, of the state uh, potentially what I think part of part of the ongoing skepticism and, and you acknowledge this as, a, as part of the constraint at the time when Wojtynski and Hilferding were operative was is the political constraints and I think that to to sort of represent the Marxist position in a, in a way that that I think is full and fair as it can be uh it's informed by a profound skepticism of the sort of ability or willingness of the political class, elites, capitalists to, to go along with it. And then in fact, uh, that, you know, public employment programs along the, the lines that we're talking about here and that, that Wojtynski was advocating for, some people may have seen that clearly, right, as or, or, or may see that clearly today as something that could result in something more socialist and oppose it on those grounds, articulated or not. So for our Marxist friends, a note of hope uh, and, uh, and I don't know, optimism, if you could, could leave us on, on that note, that would be yeah, excellent. I, I guess the, the entry point is, is Kalecki's famous uh, 1943 paper, uh, the, the Political Aspects of Full Employment. 
he's essentially making the argument uh, that if you want, you can create full employment. I mean, in that sense, he has fully learned a Keynesian lesson. And he says, yeah, I mean, technically, it's not a problem. We know how to do it. Um, the, the, the constraints ultimately are political. Politically, the ruling classes will not want uh, sustained full employment, essentially because it shifts the bargaining power too much to workers. No? And there are certainly some truths uh, to that argument and to some extent you may argue that it was happened in the course of the long boom of Fordism that some uh, sections of, of capitalists got increasingly skeptical. I, I would still even argue there that actually it wasn't so much industry, it was finance that, that wanted to move away from Fordism and Keynesianism. The big companies, in particular the, the, the ones going for mass consumption, actually weren't that hostile initially. But could also live, of course, with neoliberalism. But that's a digression. The, the important point is Kalecki infers from that that once you've reached full employment, you need further institutional change. And I think that's the crucial point. What is the change that we need? For a lot of Marxist comrades, they come with the Kalecki paper sort of as an end of the debate. They come and say, but Kalecki exactly. already told you the capitalists are not going to like it. That's why it's not going to happen in capitalism. 100%. Exactly. And that, I think, if that's what they're saying, they have to hone on up to what Hilferding did. Then you have to let the crisis play out. Otherwise, you need a rather, I'm tempted to say, almost naive picture of the revolution that you sort of could clear the table from all the institutions that we have here. Yeah? When we do a revolution, <laughs> maybe I should say <laughs> if, but I actually like the, the Freudian <laughs> slip here. Uh, when we do a revolution, <laughs> we will have to work with the institutions that we have to some extent. I mean, some of them will be fully replaced, but a lot of them will not. Yeah? We, we have to. So in, in a way, in my view, the, the, the circumstances for revolution are based in a situation that uh, you had uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, with relatively full employment and, and strong labor movements. It's there where you need further institutional change to embed that in society that will require changes in the workplace, uh, economic democracy and what have you, but it will also uh, involve a lot of changes in the financial sector, it obviously will also require changes in state structures. But that is where we have to get there. Because if you think that you can really change the power balance and take state power away from capitalists, you can also do that within these trade structures that will anyways not magically disappear. I mean, even neoliberalism after 30 years had bigger states than before. With the revolution, that will not go away. We, we will be left with massive state structures and socialists need a strategy how to deal with it, not say, oh, it's capitalist, we're not going to deal with it. Engelbert Stockhammer, thank you so much for joining us on Money on the Left. Great, that was fun. 